Welcome everyone. I'm Vicki Vasiliga, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ACHP. And thanks for tuning in for this COVID-19 special edition episode. As we all know, COVID-19 has presented many clinical, operational, and educational challenges in the past year. With that in mind, ASHP is sharing insights and lessons learned presented by your peers from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting so you can incorporate these best practices into your own as we all do our part in caring for our patients. SARS-CoV-2 is the pathogen that's responsible for the 2019 coronavirus pandemic. As of September 2020 and the creation of this presentation, it's affected over 29.4 million people worldwide and led to over 930,000 deaths. As of mid-November, these numbers are now 52 million people affected worldwide and over 1.2 million deaths. It carries a high morbidity and mortality, and up to 26% of patients who develop the COVID-associated pneumonia will require ICU admission, and up to 42% will develop acute respiratory distress syndrome. Acute respiratory distress syndrome is an inflammatory process affecting the lung parenchyma. It's characterized by protein-rich pulmonary edema and injury to the alveolar capillary barrier. There's destruction of type 2 alveolar cells, which leads to surfactant depletion, and this ultimately results in loss of aerated lung tissue. Patients manifest with severe hypoxemia, reduced lung compliance, and increased intrapulmonary shunt and subsequent dead space. We're going to discuss this more in detail in the coming slides. In 2012, the Berlin definition for ARDS was updated. This includes the appearance of bilateral pulmonary opacities on chest radiograph within seven days of insult or new or worsening respiratory symptoms. Importantly, these bilateral opacities cannot be from a cardiogenic cause. In previous definitions uh, for ARDS by the Berlin definition, this included the use of the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, uh, but this has been abandoned as invasive cardiopulmonary monitoring is no longer routinely uh, recommended for most patients in the ICU. Another key feature of the updated definition is standardization in the severity of disease. We're going to talk a lot about the ratio of the partial pressure arterial oxygenation to fraction of inspired, oxi fraction of inspired oxygen today. We commonly refer to this as the P to F ratio in clinical practice. Patients with mild disease have a P to F ratio ranging from 20, 200 to 300 millimeters of mercury with a PEEP requirement or CPAP requirement for five centimeters of water or greater. Those with moderate disease have a P to F ratio between 100 and up to 200 with five centimeters of water PEEP. And those with severe disease have a P to F ratio ranging um, less than 100 millimeters of mercury with five centimeters of water PEEP requirement. It's important to characterize a patient's severity of illness as the risk for mortality is increased with worsening disease. Those with mild disease have up to 20% mortality, uh, and while those with moderate to severe disease have a 41 to 52% risk of mortality. Acute lung injury is an overarching term for acute respiratory distress syndrome. There are direct and indirect causes of lung injury, and today we're going to talk mainly about direct cause uh, through pneumonia. Some patients will develop a pneumonia, an aspiration event, inhal have inhalational injuries, or near drowning experiences, which cause direct injury to the lung. However, we also need to understand that downstream inflammatory processes, such as sepsis from a non-pulmonary source, severe trauma, or 
severe acute pancreatitis, as well as blood transfusions, may promote the development of acute lung injury. SARS-CoV-2 infection causes direct injury to the lung tissue. This occurs through infiltration of host airway cells, which include bronchial epithelial cells, type 1 and type 2 alveolar pneumocytes, and capillary endothelial cells. These uh, cells all express lots of angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 receptors, and the SARS-CoV-2 virion uh, interacts with this receptor via the spike protein, or S protein. This then uh, cleaves the receptor and allows the viral binding to the host membrane uh, through endocytosis. There's also transmembrane proteases which interact um, and cause further uh, uptake of the virus particles. Once SARS-CoV-2 enters into the cell, its RNA is released, and then it uses the cell to undergo viral replication. Hundreds of new virins are then released through exocytosis, and this results in progression of infection. In early stage of COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 signals a massive inflammatory response. In this diagram here, you're seeing the alveolar lumen and what occurs in response to the SARS-CoV-2 virin infiltrating a type 2 alveolar cell. The type 2 alveolar cell is responsible for creating surfactant within the alveolus, and with the destruction of this cell comes reduced surfactant production, and ultimately this leads to atelectasis. Additionally, there's infiltration of T lymphocytes, monocytes, and in neutrophils. This further leads to cytokine release, which enhances the inflammatory response through release of tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-1, and interleukin-6. In late-stage COVID-19, the inflammatory response leads to progression of acute respiratory distress syndrome. Here, there's hallmark increased vascular permeability, which allows for infiltration of pulmonary edema. Um, there is also continued influx of neutrophils, monocytes, and T lymphocytes, and this activates the coagulation cascade, leading to either microthrombus formation or, uh, in many, many cases, uh, pulmonary embolism. Additionally, there's collagen deposition and in the form of hyaline membrane formation, and this is going to further impair gas exchange. Before we begin discussion on the shunt physiology seen in ARDS, I think we should first discuss the normal function of the alveolus. So in normal scenarios, deoxygenated blood is taken from the right side of the heart and returned to the lung tissue. At this point, CO2 is exchanged down its concentration gradient and exchanged for oxygen, and oxygenated blood is returned to the left side of the heart, which is then uh, transported through the rest of the body. However, in ARDS, the alveoli is full of proteins and inflammatory cells, and essentially gas exchange can occur due to this fluid infiltration of the alveolus. Due to reduced surfactant production, the alveoli will collapse, um, and subsequently, the body uh, realizes that it's no longer getting oxygenated blood returning from certain areas of alveoli, and as a result, will shunt blood and reduce the amount of blood flow to these alveoli. This becomes problematic later in the disease as you're trying to reinvigorate use of these alveoli that have been out of service. 
We've mainly described the acute exudative and fibroproliferative phases of ARDS at this point in the presentation. The time course for this development is one to two weeks for the acute exudative phase and weeks two to three for the fibroproliferative phase. At this point in time, patients either rapidly recover or they may progress to the fibrotic phase in which there's further collagen deposition into the lung leading to fibrosis. And at this point in time, changes in lung function may or may not reverse um, over time. In general, when we're managing ARDS, we want to use low tidal volume mechanical ventilation. We need to recruit alveoli and get them popped back open. Uh, we may use pulmonary vasodilators to help improve um, blood supply to these, uh, these areas and, and then subsequent gas exchange. Additionally, we need to minimize patients uh, taking spontaneous ventilations or spontaneous breaths, as this may precipitate silly or self-induced lung injury. Um, so we might need to use different modalities to minimize spontaneous ventilation. Prone positioning is particularly helpful for patients with ARDS, and we'll discuss more of this later. And then for patients who are refractory to the therapies and the modalities that we just discussed, there's always extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, and this may be a last line for some patients. In general, to achieve these management strategies, we're going to use a mix of non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic um, modes of therapy. This includes optimized mechanical ventilation, the use of prone positioning in ECMO, and then from a pharmacologic standpoint, we're mainly looking at neuromuscular blockade, the use of conservative fluid strategies, potentially using pulmonary vasodilators, and then corticosteroids. Corticosteroids have sort of a tenuous history in the management of ARDS, and we will discuss some of these controversies uh, later in the presentation. So how does ARDS management look different in COVID-19? Well, for one thing, um, numerous novel agents, repurposing of uh, previously developed medications, and also the use of interleukin-6 inhibitors, antiretrovirals, have been studied in COVID-19 and was thought to um, help modify the disease course. At the end of the day, these agents haven't really been very promising for patients with severe disease with ARDS. So I think this underscores the importance of using good uh, supportive care measures in our critically ill patients. As we move forward, let's keep in mind our first patient case. This is S.A., a 59-year-old female who's a resident of a skilled nursing facility. She was diagnosed two days prior to admission with COVID-19, um, and her medical history includes diabetes, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and coronary artery disease. She's admitted with progressively worsening symptoms of cough, shortness of breath, and diarrhea. She's diagnosed with acute on chronic hypoxemic respiratory failure due to the viral pneumonitis, and on admission, her SpO2, or pulse ox, is 93%, while on six liters per minute oxygen therapy via nasal cannula. And then three hours later, her SpO2 drops to 88%, and she's placed on high-flow nasal cannula at this point in time. Uh, high-flow settings include 30 liters per minute with 60% uh, oxygen flowing through the device, or an FiO2 of 0.6. So as a pharmacist, we may not commonly think about um, oxygen therapy delivery modalities, um, but during this pandemic, this can become extremely important as it may impact the environment with which we work. So oxygen therapy is recommended by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign COVID-19 uh, guidelines, um, and it should be initiated for any patient with an a pulse ox less than 90 to 92%. And we should use this therapy to maintain a, a pulse ox no more than 
Generally speaking, we're using traditional modes of um, oxygen delivery, such as uh, nasal cannula, uh, maybe a non-rebreather mask. But for patients who continue to progress despite oxygen therapy, uh, we may need to use high-flow nasal cannula or non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. There is a preference to use high-flow nasal cannula, um, but at times when resources are scarce uh, during a surge, we may need to use non-invasive positive uh, pressure ventilation such as BiPAP. Most importantly is that all of these patients need to be closely monitored with short interval assessments and reassessments to detect for worsening respiratory failure and the need to prepare for intubation. Now I'll take a minute and talk a bit about bioaerosol dispersion. So it's an unfortunate fact that patients have given healthcare workers COVID-19 through spread of the virus within the environment in which the patient stays. Um, so there has been some discussion that at the beginning of the pandemic, there was reluctance to use high flow nasal cannula for fear that it may disperse viral particles um, more so than other uh, nasal or excuse me, oxygen therapy modalities. Um, the authors of this study, although they did not use COVID-19 particles, uh, did demonstrate the dispersion distance with different modes of oxygen therapy. Here at the bottom of the slide, you're going to see more traditional modes of nasal, uh, excuse me, of oxygen therapy, including venturi mask, non-rebreather mask, and a simple mask. As you can see with high-flow nasal cannula, which is currently the preferred um, non-invasive strategy for managing patients refractory to uh, nasal cannula therapy, the dispersion distance is actually less than that of our more uh, traditional uh, oxygen delivery modalities. So what we take from this is that we should not limit the patient's access to these um, preferred modalities for fear of spreading uh, more viral particles. Most importantly, and especially as a pharmacist at the bedside, uh, it's very important that we're all wearing uh, the most appropriate PPE uh, for that unit uh, and in, when interacting with a patient. While advanced modes of mechanical ventilation are beyond uh, the discussion that we will have today. It's very important for any pharmacist taking care of critically ill patients to have at least a basic to moderate understanding of mechanical ventilation and how we take care of critically ill patients. In general, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign recommends uh, use of low tidal volume mechanical ventilation with 48 ml per kilo of ideal body weight dosing of that tidal volume. And we do this to reduce the risk of volume trauma and alveolar overdistension. Um, we're trying to avoid ventilator-induced lung injury this way. Additionally, we want patients to have high positive end expiratory pressure uh, settings, and this prevents atelectotrauma or the closing of the alveoli. And finally, we want to ensure that our settings prevent patients from having plateau pressures above 30 centimeters of water because this will minimize barotrauma. In general, lung protective ventilation strategies have been evaluated in numerous trials. This recent meta-analysis evaluated both open lung strategies and non-open lung strategies. So open lung strategies use low tidal volume ventilation and high positive end expiratory pressures. As you can see here, low tidal volume in these uh, combined strategies favors a reduction in mortality. When non-open lung strategies are utilized, the data doesn't have as clear of a trend toward mortality reduction. Um, so really, it is the combination of all three of these modalities um, that will lead to reduced mortality in our critically ill patients. 
Another thing that I would like to discuss before we move on today is that there is thought to be some heterogeneity in our COVID-19 associated ARDS population. Generally speaking, ARDS patients have H-type disease, H standing for high lung elastins. Um, and this is our traditional ARDS picture. This is important because they're uh, traditionally very responsive to high, high PEEP settings. However, many key opinion leaders in the ARDS literature had noted that some patients act very differently, um, especially early in the disease course, and they dubbed them the L-type, meaning that they had low lung elastins and high lung compliance. And this was important because it meant that the patient may not respond to PEEP the same way we would expect a traditional ARDS patient. So alternative mechanisms of stabilization, at least early in disease, may need to be trialed. Ultimately, uh, as clinicians, we needed to balance um, the rapidly evolving literature at the beginning of the pandemic, which was generally low-level evidence, including case series, case reports, and anecdotes. Um, and ultimately, this was balanced by the higher uh, right rigor, uh, scientific rigor studies that were evaluating uh, modalities of treatment for um, non-COVID-19 ARDS. And ultimately, we end up drawing upon this non-COVID-19 literature to, uh, generally speaking, manage these patients. So now let's return back to patient case number one. Um, SA is later intubated for worsening hypoxemic respiratory failure despite oxygen therapy via high-flow nasal cannula. She's placed on lung protective ventilatory strategies with a tidal volume of 6 mLs per kilo of ideal body weight, PEEP of 10, and an FiO2 of 1, or 100% oxygen. One hour later, an arterial blood gas is drawn, and her P to F ratio is calculated as being 124 millimeters of mercury. So which of the following management strategies should be implemented for SA to reduce her risk of death? Is it A, conservative fluid management, B, prone positioning, C, vecuronium boluses, or D, inhaled epoprostenol therapy? The answer is B, prone positioning. SA has moderate to severe ARDS, and she would benefit from prone positioning based on the available literature. Prone positioning has a lot of theoretical benefits. It decreases the ventral alveolar distension and dorsal alveolar, alveolar collapse and reduces the difference between the dorsal and ventral transpulmonary pressures. This overall will allow improved elastance of your respiratory system. There's also another benefit in that there's reduced lung compression in that when the patient is flipped onto their stomach, the heart is now supported by the sternum instead of the lung tissue and this reduces the risk of um, atelectasis. Prone positioning also has an interesting history. Um, in 2010, a meta-analysis of four studies of ARDS patients were ran that randomized patients to prone versus supine position um, found that in the subset of patients with severe disease with a P to F ratio less than 100 millimeters of mercury, there was a significant 10% absolute risk reduction in mortality. Um, so here we say it's all about the severity. And in a future study in 2013, the Proceva uh, investigators evaluated the use of six hours, excuse me, 16 hours of prone positioning versus supine positioning in patients with a P to F ratio less than 150 and requiring a PEEP of greater than five centimeters of water. So they evaluated the use of prone positioning in a moderate to severe ARDS population, which had not been done 
prior to this point in time. Very importantly, the PROCEBA uh, study found that both 28 and 90 day mortality was significantly reduced at 28 days and at 90 days with nearly a 16% absolute risk reduction um, at 28 day, for 28 day mortality. And this was retained even after adjusting for differences in the baseline sequential organ failure assessment scores, which tended to be higher in the supine group. These uh, data were then included in an updated meta-analysis about prone positioning. And specifically on the slide here, I'm showing you a screen, a, a snapshot of uh, the forest plot uh, evaluating greater than 12 hours of prone time versus less than 12 hours of prone time. What you can see here is that in the studies that had patients in the prone position for greater than or equal to 12 hours per day, there was a trend toward improved mortality um, in those groups. If you proned for less than 12 hours a day, we don't see that trend anymore. Um, so what we learn from this is that 12 to 16 hours per day of proning is probably the sweet spot for managing these ARDS patients. Also, this ARDS meta-analysis evaluated safety events. Um, there is, unfortunately, an increased risk of pressure ulcers and the potential for endotracheal tube obstruction or dislodgement in patients who are undergoing prone positioning, and precautions must be taken to minimize those risks. I will say that these risks are very real. Um, I've, as I experienced during the COVID-19 pandemic when we had many patients in our ICU um, being treated for ARDS, and clinicians really, I wanna underscore that clinicians must be trained in the proper techniques to minimize these potential life-threatening life safety events. So what about prone positioning in non-intubated patients, especially those with COVID-19? You know, can it hurt? Um, in a retrospective review of a very small cohort of 25 patients who were intermediate level of care um, at one institution, um, the evaluation of prone positioning on this uh, subset of patients was evaluated. These patients had high respiratory rates greater than 30 breaths per minute, low pulse oximetry, less than or equal to 93, um, and were requiring oxygen therapy via nasal cannula or non-rebreather mask. They had to have at least one awake prone positioning session um, at least an hour or longer to be included in this study. Patients' pulse ox oximetry was measured one hour after initiation of prone positioning, and interestingly, the median increase in their pulse ox was 7%. Uh, 19 percent, excuse me, 19 patients within this 25 patient group uh, achieved a pulse ox greater than or equal to 95, uh, which was a goal. Unfortunately, seven of these patients did require intubation, but the patients who did require intubation ultimately did not respond to prone positioning even at one hour. So perhaps we can use prone positioning in non-intubated patients to be a surrogate um, marker to determine you know, uh, where these patients might need to be at a higher level of care, or perhaps they may need to um, be considered for intubation. Ultimately, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign recommends that at least 12 to 16 hours per day is utilized for prone positioning in patients with moderate to severe COVID-associated ARDS. They acknowledge that this may increase the risk of pressure ulcers and endotracheal uh, tube obstruction or dislodgement. And this underscores the importance of healthcare workers being trained on the proper proning technique. 
I'll share that at my institution during our surge, we had a very low operating room census, and we invited our nurse anesthetists and anesthesiologists up to the ICU to be part of our proning team. Um, and th they would work with respiratory therapists, nursing, as well as uh, nurse assistants to then move these patients safely in and out of the prone position. Um, and I think this was very successful and uh, demonstrates good teamwork um, here at Cooper. Now we're going to move on and talk about the pharmacologic management of COVID-19 associated ARDS. In general, neuromuscular blockade is probably one of the most important tools we have in our armamentarium for management of patients with ARDS. This is because it reduces patient ventilator dyssynchrony and it minimizes, eliminates patient spontaneous ventilation, um, which we often want to do in these cases. Um, it will ultimately reduce airway pressures and barotrauma as well. But we also need to consider the potential adverse effects uh, related to prolonged use of NMBA. And this uh, may be seen as a paradoxical increase in the duration of mechanical ventilation, uh, profound neuromuscular weakness and neuropathy. As I previously alluded to, the use of neuromuscular blockade in ARDS has been uh, sort of a contentious uh, story over the last decade or so. In 2010, the Acuricis study investigators evaluated the use of 48 hours of continuous infusion cisatricurium compared to placebo in moderate to severe ARDS patients, as evidenced by a P to F ratio less than 150. These patients were maintained on lung protective uh, ventilatory strategies, and a good number of these patients uh, were prone, nearly 30% in both groups. Interestingly, the cisatricurium group tended to have a reduced P to F ratio at baseline compared to placebo, um, but overall, the use of prone positioning was associated with a significantly reduced 90-day mortality uh, compared with not using the prone positioning. It also increased ventilator-free days, days out of the ICU, and days without organ dysfunction. Fast forward nine years later, and the ROSE trial wanted to reestablish the use of NMBA in ARDS in more modern times. Had a very similar study design in that cisatricurium was utilized for up to 48 hours um, compared to usual care. So usual care um, generally targeted uh, light sedation strategies in patients as opposed to uh, deep sedation needed with the use of neuromuscular blockade. They included a equally sick population with a P to F ratio less than 150. And these patients were maintained on um, lung protective ventilatory strategies, but they did have a higher PEEP um, goal than in the previous Acuracis trial. The use of prone positioning was less in, than in the Acuracis trial as well. Here I have this highlighted for you in that prone positioning was utilized in about 15 to 18% of patients in this study compared to 28 and 29% in the Acuracis trial. Ultimately, the ROSE trial found that there was no difference in 90-day in-hospital death between groups, and, and then the trial was terminated early because of futility. There was also no difference in in-hospital mortality, days free of ventilation and out of ICU, or days out of the hospital between groups. And this is largely attributed to slight difference in study design in terms of how uh, ventilatory uh, strategies were managed in this group with the use of higher PEEP. They also noted that they um, sort of targeted patients that were earlier on in their ARDS onset, and this may have impacted um, the results. 
And then there was different use of prone positioning in this study compared to the 2010 study. Now let's go to a different patient case. Here we have MT. He's a 34-year-old male being transferred from an outside hospital for ECMO evaluation after being diagnosed with COVID-19 associated severe ARDS. On arrival, the patient's on lung-protective ventilatory strategies uh, and is on 100% oxygen with an FiO2 of one, and he's in the prone position. The flight crew had been infusing the following medications while in transit. Propofol at 60 mics per kg per minute, fentanyl at 300 mics per hour, cisatricurium at 300 mics per kilo per minute, and then the patient is also being maintained on norepinephrine uh, and vasopressin at moderate doses. His ABG on arrival um, is drawn, and then this reveals a P to F ratio of 98 millimeters of mercury. The patient also is in an acute kidney injury with a serum creatinine of 2.98 um, with a known baseline of 0.8, and he is not making any urine. Due to the drug shortages caused by the pandemic surge in critically ill patients, you'll need, now need to transition your patient to some alternative sedation analgesia and neuromuscular blocking agents that are uh, currently available at your institution. And I might add that it changed day to day. <laughs> so today, rocuronium infusion is your drug of choice for NMBA. And this is the current only available substitute for cisatricurium. So now we have another knowledge check. What effects are anticipated when transitioning from cisatricurium to rocuronium infusion in this patient? Is it A, prolonged paralytic effects due to his acute kidney injury? B, vagal response with initial infusion rate? C, prolonged paralytic effects due to the longer half-life? Or D, shortened paralytic effects due to non-renal excretion? The answer is C. You would expect to see prolonged paralytic effects due to rocuronium's longer half-life compared to cisatricurium. So although we have uh, discussed some literature showing that perhaps neuromuscular blockade doesn't have the same effect we thought it used to have um, in patients with ARDS, it is still part of the management strategy recommended by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign uh, for COVID-19 management. In general, less is more. So they recommend using intermittent boluses, um, so as-needed medication to facilitate the protective lung vent ventilatory strategies, and then only upgrade to continuous infusions when there's persistent ventilator dyssynchrony or the patient is having high plateau pressures. If um, you're going to be using continuous infusion neuromuscular blockade, you're going to need deep sedation and also adequate analgesia. Continuous infusion NMBA may also be considered for patients who are undergoing prone position ventilation as it may uh, make the patient uh, more comfortable lying in that position. Um, so this may be another scenario where you use it. Ultimately, the surviving sepsis campaign uh, recommends that you limit the use of continuous infusion NMBA to 48 hours and less if possible. During COVID-19, we had lots of COVID-19-induced uh, ARDS, but we also had lots of COVID-19-induced drug shortages. Um, and, and neuromuscular blockade uh, was definitely one of the hardest hit agents uh, or classes of medications during our surge. Additionally, NMBA requires concomitant deep sedation and analgesia, so these agents were also impacted. The surge in critically ill patients created during the pandemic created increased need for these therapies, 
And another thing is that these patients had extraordinarily high dosing requirements, and this is likely due to their hypermetabolic state and augmented renal clearance. When thinking about drug shortages and managing um, inventory of medication, we should uh, think about surge capacity and response on three different care levels. So we have conventional therapies. These are drugs that we're familiar with using for a given disease state, and we have comfort using and familiarity with using for the disease state. Then there's contingency medications. We'll use these in a pinch, but due to their altered pharmaco or their uh, different pharmacokinetic profile, they may not be as ideal for a critically ill patient. And in crisis mode, well, we might need to use whatever we can get. So in terms of neuromuscular blockade, our conventional therapies are likely cisatricurium and atricurium for most institutions, contingency medications, vecuronium and rocuronium. Uh, and fortunately, during the uh, pandemic, I did not have to end up using crisis medication of pancuronium for NMBA, but this would be an option if needed. Let's talk about why cisatricurium and atricurium are our ideal neuromuscular blocking agents for ARDS. It all comes down to the kinetics. These drugs have relatively uh, quick onsets and offsets, um, and then their duration of action is pretty dependable. Another key feature is that they undergo Hoffman elimination, so they're not reliant on renal and hepatic function for metabolism and elimination. This is great in critically ill patients, which tend to have renal and hepatic dysfunction. Um, adverse events uh, are very rare uh, with these agents, may include bronchospasm and bradycardia, uh, but generally speaking, are re relatively well tolerated. In terms of our non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockade in COVID-19 that are less ideal or more of our contingency and crisis medications, we have vecuronium and rocuronium, um, as well as pancuronium. Vecuronium and rocuronium have longer uh, durations of actions, and pancuronium has the longest duration of action. Rocuronium additionally has an alpha and beta terminal half-life. Um, and with repeated use and continuous infusion use, you may see very prolonged effects of uh, neuromuscular blockade in patients receiving this medication. In general, these medications may cause vagal, vagal blockade, which would be manifest as hypotension, tachycardia, um, and more so at higher doses with vecuronium and rocuronium, um, but this is definitely pronounced in patients receiving pancuronium. Additionally, vecuronium um, may be preferred in patients who have uh, hepatic dysfunction um, over rocuronium, uh, and as rocuronium may be preferred in patients with renal dysfunction um, over vecuronium due to their metabolism. So now I'd like to summarize as a practical approach to using NMBA in patients with ARDS. In general, I very much agree with using intermittent boluses and use as little as possible um, to facilitate safe ventilation. I agree with reserving the continuous infusions for patients with ventilator dyssynchrony, um, those needing prone ventilation, but we should really limit to as short a duration as possible. Um, and this may be less than 48 hours, depending on what agent you have available. So uh, given that the surge created uh, very much uh, large drug shortages with NMBA, you're going to have to consider using um, NMBA like a sedation, sedation or analgesia where you give an NMBA holiday especially if you're using contingency medications. 
Um, you may find that after you remove NMBA, the patient remains uh, paralyzed for a period of time after discontinuing the drug that's longer than you would expect. Um, so you must ensure that there's adequate sedation analgesia running uh, concomitantly until the patient begins to um, have rest restoration of their uh, muscle function. At this point in time, you may find that you no longer need neuromuscular blockade and the use of sedation analgesia by itself is uh, enough to facilitate ventilator synchrony. If not, I would say go back to the bolus um, and then you can start using as needed NMBA for any breakthrough dyssynchrony and then restart this process if the patient remains um, with ARDS and intubated for long periods of time. Fluid management strategies have also been a long um, point of contention in, in ARDS. In general, there's always been debate of conservative versus liberal fluid strategies. Conservative fluid strategies focus on just enough fluid to uh, target end organ perfusion. Uh, at times, there may be uh, protocols that call for the use of diuretics as well as colloid medications, colloid fluids. Liberal fluid strategies, um, generally speaking, use crystalloid therapy, um, but run the risk of developing or worsening pulmonary edema. In the largest study to date of conservative versus liberal fluid strategies, um, at 1,000 patients with ARDS, and this was all comers with ARDS because the PF ratio could be anything under 300 millimeters of mercury, were randomized to either conservative or liberal fluid strategies. Um, as I mentioned, this was the largest fluid study in ARDS to date. And what they found is that although conservative and liberal, liberal fluid strategies had no difference in mortality um, at 60 days, which was the study period, they did find that patients randomized conservative strategies had more ventilator-free days at the end of the study period, more ICU-free days at the end of the study period, and were less likely to require dialysis. Um, compared to the liberal fluid strategy. Um, so from this, most people practice using a conservative fluid strategy uh, for patients with ARDS. In a more updated meta-analysis comparing fluid strategies in patients with ARDS as well as mixed ARDS and sepsis, overall you see the trend that uh, conservative fluid strategy has impact on reducing mortality. So in addition to the trend toward a mortality benefit, um, there's also uh, in this meta-analysis demonstration of significant reduction in the duration of mechanical ventilation as well as the ICU length of stay. In general, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign COVID-19 guidelines extrapolate fluid management from non-COVID ARDS literature. And they suggest using the conservative fluid strategies that we just for the reasons we just discussed they do still recommend using crystalloid over colloid, but do recommend using the balanced crystalloid, such as lactate ringers, over normal saline. I think the key take home here is that COVID-19 patients who develop concomitant distributive shock, we should still ensure that we appropriately fluid resuscitate these patients. Um, but importantly, we should assess for fluid responsiveness rather than just using standard um, doses of uh, fluid for fluid resuscitation. Um, and I think this is very important as many of our COVID-19 patients, although they initially come in with viral infection, um, often were developing subsequent bacterial infections and then uh, subsequent bacterial sepsis. 
So we still need to be able to manage these patients according to um, surviving sepsis campaign recommendations. Now let's get back to our patient case uh, of MT, the 34-year-old male that was transferred for ECMO evaluation. Four hours after transfer, his current medications include midazolam at 8 milligrams per hour, hydromorphone at 4 milligrams per hour, rocuronium infusion at 8 milligrams per kilogram per minute, and increased norepinephrine and vasopressin requirements. Um, these are high-level vasopressors. He's just barely maintaining his MAP at around 60 millimeters of mercury, and at this point, his P to F ratio has dropped to 83, excuse me, 82 millimeters of mercury. His AKI is worsening with a creatinine of 3.73. Um, his baseline had been 0.8, and he's still not making urine, and he remains in the prone position. So we have another knowledge check at this point. Corticosteroid therapy should be withheld for distributive shock, refractory to fluid challenge, and vasopressor therapy in this patient due to his concomitant COVID-19 infection. True or false? So the answer to this is false. Um, and we're going to now talk about corticosteroid therapy in the management of COVID-19-associated ARDS um, in more detail. So as I previously mentioned, um, use of corticosteroids has been contentious in ARDS over the past decade or so, and especially in COVID-19 because it's a viral infection. Now, clinicians had largely, largely been drawing upon the non-COVID-19 non associated, associated ARDS literature to guide uh, initial recommendations for these patients. But there was some initial reluctance to use corticosteroids but some of the newer literature has helped change these views. In general, the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine had put out a corticosteroid insufficiency guideline um, back in 2017, and, in and they have a recommendation for corticosteroid use in ARDS. In general, they recommend corticosteroids in early, moderate, and severe disease in those patients who have a P to F ratio less than 200. Uh, and it has to be early in disease onset, so within 14 days of known insult. This guideline also had a small meta-analysis included in it in that they did an updated individual patient data analysis of the four largest trials of prolonged courses of methylprednisolone in ARDS. And they evaluated early and later onset ARDS in this evaluation. Overall, they found that corticosteroids reduced mortality and the duration of mechanical ventilation, and they provided two different methylprednisolone dosing strategies based upon the time of um, initiation of steroid therapy from ARDS onset. Regardless of the regimen chosen, a slow taper over 13 days would follow after uh, an initial uh, treatment with seven days of methylprednisolone. As I mentioned before, there was some reluctance with using steroids in COVID-19 because it's a viral infection. We know that there's increased mortality with corticosteroid use in influenza. The same CIRCE guidelines that we just talked about also suggest against using corticosteroids in influenza because numerous observational studies found an increased risk of death with the use of corticosteroids. And when looking at the four trials with the lowest risk of bias, these findings were very consistent. Um, that they 
also um, generated increased risk of superinfection. These findings were confirmed in a 2020 systematic uh, review and meta-analysis of uh, corticosteroids in influenza-associated ARDS and severe pneumonia. And based on that, uh, I think we all feel pretty comfortable avoiding the use of corticosteroids in influenza. So why should we potentially use them in COVID-19 infection then? There was also question of whether corticosteroids inhibited viral shedding and allowed for the viral particles to um, hang around longer in patients with COVID-19. This was largely based on a 2004 study of patients with SARS infection who were randomized to receive excuse me, hydrocortisone early in the disease course. And what they found is that um, in the 16 um, non-ICU uh, level of care patients, the median time to undetectable RNA concentrations was much higher in the patients who got hydrocortisone than those in the placebo group by nearly four days difference. Thankfully, an evaluation of viral clearance in COVID-19 was conducted recently in 78 patients who received corticosteroids or standard of care at one center in China. In the general hospital admission group, uh, we found that there was no difference in the duration of viral shedding. And even in the patients who were considered severe, i.e. those that went to the intensive care unit, there was no significant difference in the duration of viral shedding. So perhaps we uh, might be able to use corticosteroids in patients with COVID-19, since it does not seem to impact the duration of viral shedding. Another fortunate event this year is that early in 2020, uh, a large study of corticosteroids in non-COVID-19 ARDS was published. This is truly, in my opinion, a turning point for the use of corticosteroids in ARDS. The DEXA ARDS study um, evaluated the use of dexamethasone 20 milligrams daily from days one through five, followed by 10 milligrams daily on days six through 10, compared to conventional treatment in patients with moderate to severe ARDS within seven days onset. These patients were maintained on lung protective ventilatory strategies, and ultimately it was demonstrated that there was a significantly greater number of uh, ventilator-free days in the patients who received dexamethasone compared to those in the control group. The between-group difference was nearly five days, um, so this is very clinically significant as well. Secondary outcomes included reduced 60-day all-cause, ICU, and hospital mortalities, the duration of mechanical ventilation, um, and there was no apparent increase in risk of adverse events or complications. Early in the pandemic, we didn't have any evaluation of corticosteroid use in COVID-19, so the Surviving Sepsis Campaign largely drew upon the non-COVID-19 ARDS literature. They performed an updated meta-analysis of seven RCTs, and this demonstrated overall there's reduced mortality with the use of corticosteroids and duration of uh, mechanical ventilation. The limitation, of course, is that these trials were not focused on uh, viral ARDS and may not be as generalizable to a COVID-19 population. In general, though, they say with mechanically ventilated adults with ARDS, we suggest using corticosteroids even based on relatively low quality of evidence because it was not in a viral population. For patients who do not have ARDS, they suggested at the time against the routine use of corticosteroids, although this may change with more emerging literature um, that we're going to speak about next. 
In terms of using dexamethasone therapy in patients with COVID-19-associated respiratory failure, the largest study to date we have right now is the recovery trial, uh, which was published recently in 2020. Um, here we have the use of dexamethasone 6 milligrams once daily, used for up to 10 days or at hospital discharge. These patients were randomized to either dexamethasone or usual care. Um, the majority of these patients required oxygen therapy with or without non-invasive ventilation, um, and only a small percent required invasive mechanical ventilation or the use of ECMO therapy. Overall, there was a significantly lower all-cause 28-day mortality with dexamethasone. Um, they also saw significant reductions in invasive mechanical ventilation, um, but not with not discharge from hospital at 28 days. Another study of dexamethasone uh, was done in patients who with, had moderate to severe ARDS. They were randomized to receive dexamethasone um, 20 milligrams daily on days one through five, and then 10 milligrams daily on days six through 10. Uh, this was very similar to the uh, DEXA-ARDS study. Nearly 21 to 22% of patients were in prone positioning. And again, this was a moderate to severe ARDS population with the um, P to F ratio ranging in the 130s. Uh, during, in this study, they found ventilator-free days during the first 28 days to be uh, increased uh, with the use of dexamethasone compared to usual care. Um, but ultimately, the trial had to be terminated early after the DEXA-ARDS study was published due to loss of equipose. So although they uh, were not able to find a difference in 28-day mortality among some other outcomes, this was likely due to it being underpowered. Hydrocortisone has also been evaluated in COVID-19. This includes the 2020 REMAP-CAP uh, trial. Um, these patients with uh, suspected or confirmed COVID-19 were admitted to the ICU for uh, respiratory needs or cardiovascular support. They received a fixed dose of hydrocortisone for the first seven days uh, versus uh, a group that got fixed dose hydrocortisone as a shock-dependent uh, regimen, meaning they could continue it up to day 28 versus patients in the usual care group that did not receive these steroids. These patients had moderate to severe ARDS. And overall, the primary uh, outcome of organ support, support free days at 21 days um, was found to be um, lower in the uh, hydrocortisone group. Um, but ultimately, this trial was terminated early uh, for the same reason with the publication of the DEXA-ARDS study. Cape COVID um, was another uh, study of the use of hydrocortisone as a continuous infusion with a taper over 14 days uh, or until ICU discharge versus usual care. Patients with uh, suspected or confirmed COVID-19 were included if they had ARDS, um, and this was all levels of ARDS with a PF ratio less than 300. Um, most of these patients were moderate to severe disease based on their baseline PF ratios. Um, and unfortunately, they did not see a significant difference in um, treatment failure at day 21, and this included uh, death, persistent mechanical, mechanical ventilation, or the need for high-flow nasal cannula um, at day 21. Uh, but again, this may be done, uh, may have been due to the underpowering of the study as it was terminated early. So in summary, corticosteroids do reduce mortality in non-COVID-19 ARDS. The recovery trial demonstrated that a reduced mortality in COVID-19 respiratory failure can be seen with the use of steroids. There are some important limitations 
on the ability to generalize these findings to those patients with ARDS, as some of the details on the patient's severity of illness um, had not been published in the preliminary report, such as uh, the patient's baseline P to F ratios. Um, in general, the other CODEX, uh, REMAP-CAP, and CAPE COVID trials uh, did evaluate patients with severe ARDS, but these trials were terminated early and potentially underpowered to demonstrate uh, mortality benefits. I think it's important to acknowledge that there's likely no increased harm with the use of corticosteroids in the shock population especially, and this is very important for clinicians to understand. To round out our discussion on other pharmacotherapy, um, we should at least spend one moment talking about inhaled vasodilator therapy. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign does recommend against the routine use of inhaled nitric oxide in patients with ARDS due to COVID-19, um, as there's uh, no difference on mortality and potentially may increase um, risk of ki acute kidney injury. However, they do have a line to recommend um, a trial of inhaled vasodilator th therapy when all other therapies have been trialed with no success. So this is sort of a last, a last line therapy uh, to trial before potentially uh, considering ECMO. And the use of ECMO is certainly beyond the discussion, um, the dis this, today's discussion, but it should be acknowledged that this would again be uh, needed for refractory therapy. The key takeaways for COVID-19-associated ARDS is that we want to utilize lung protective ventilatory strategies uh, with these patients with ARDS. That includes use of low tidal volume, high PEEP, and trying to maintain low plateau pressures. Prone positioning does reduce mortality in ARDS, and critical care teams should really be uh, trained in safe proning techniques. We now know that corticosteroids reduce mortality in severe ARDS and COVID-19-associated respiratory failure. You should uh, select your corticosteroid regimen based on the patient's uh, baseline characteristics, their P to F ratio, and their hemodynamic status. And then the use of neuromuscular blockade, although modern literature in ARDS non-COVID populations don't demonstrate a mortality benefit, um, it may be reasonable to use limited durations to help facilitate lung protective strategies, um, as well as prone positioning. Thank you so much for listening and joining us today for this special edition podcast on COVID-19. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our COVID-19 Resource Center at ashp.org backslash COVID-19 for the most up-to-date developments on COVID-19. Take care and thank you for all you do.